This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 207. Greetings, listeners. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, fresh off the writing desk. I'll also give you an update on my life and my writing. But for now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 65 in my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Also, this chapter draws on a bunch of actions that were taken by the bad guys, which the heroes didn't find out about until much later. For the sake of clarity, I'll describe these events in the order they happened, not in the order we learned about them. The Brotherhood of the Sepulchre's plans have been foiled. Kate and her allies have stopped them from summoning the shackled god back into the world. But this victory came too late for many of the Brotherhood's victims. One such victim was Sanja Idril, a refugee from the island nation of Kumar. Sanja had fled from the military occupation of her homeland in the hope of making a new life in Metamore. Together with a group of her fellow refugees, Sanja was illicitly smuggled into the city by agents of the Vampire Crime Syndicate. By taking advantage of their passengers' naivete, the syndicate brought them into the Empire without papers, making the refugees a cheap and disposable source of labor for their black market operations. Sanja was assigned to an unlicensed brothel operated by Madame Petra, a valuable thrall belonging to one of Malcolm's lieutenants. Sanja and a group of several other new recruits met with Madame Petra, who loaded them into a van for delivery to the brothel. But on the way, Brotherhood agents attacked the van, killing Petra and her guards. Sanja and the other refugees were taken to be sacrifices, fuel for the cult's black magic ritual. By this time, the Brotherhood's local leader, Mr. Sidrastia, knew that the cult's activities had started to catch the attention of some police detectives. By chance, one of the sacrificial victims had been examined by Morgan Drowling, who saw through the fake vampire bites they had used as a cover. Morgan then pulled up three other bodies that had been examined by her deputy, Lisa Chang. Sure enough, the bodies Lisa had labeled as vamp attacks had also been faked. Now the cops were looking for a serial killer, possibly one with a ritual use for blood. Adrastia needed to point the cops toward a patsy, someone who could take the blame for this string of murder kidnappings without revealing the true purpose behind them. Adrastia had one of her lieutenants, Brother Recludius, plant a false trail for the police, with Sanjo serving as both the audience and the medium for the message. Recludius gave a scripted performance in front of a baffled and terrified Sanja, telling her that the purpose of her death was to carry out revenge against the vampire prince. Then Sanja was sacrificed, the mana from her death was collected, and her body was dumped outside a warehouse at the Soulshore docks. 
The true moment of Sanja's death was magically obscured, so only the staged performance would show up on an augury. Adrastia then carried out the second phase of her frame job. In her alter ego as Captain Rowan Shaw, the head of Special Investigations Division, she sent Kate and her partner Lizzie to investigate Sanja's body. Kate performed the augury and saw Recludius's performance. Lizzie saw it too, and recognized Recludius as Nevin Ardlido, an acquaintance of hers from university. With the Patsy's identity thus confirmed by two police officers who had only recently joined the squad, Adrastia's plan seemed to be going perfectly. SID raided Nevin's house and took him prisoner. Five of his co-conspirators were found dead by ritual suicide in his basement, completing the picture of a small, obsessive murder cult that SID had neatly put out of business. The non-detection spell they had performed erased the arcane signature on Nevin's house, making it impossible for Kate to perform another augury. With this sacrifice from a few of their loyal soldiers, Adrastia and the Brotherhood would be able to continue the work of freeing the shackled god. But another unforeseen event blew the Brotherhood's plan to hell. Pamela Nightshade, an esper on Morgan's squad, volunteered to examine Sanja's body after Kate had already performed the augury. Pamela's psionic power was unaffected by the masking the Brotherhood had performed on Sanja's body, and she received a clear vision of the actual moment of Sanja's death, surrounded by the Brotherhood's ritual paraphernalia, including their holy symbol. That clue set our heroes on the trail to expose the Brotherhood's whole conspiracy. But that is little solace for Sanja, who died far from home, with no one to mourn or remember her. The Lost and the Least A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 65 Saturday, June 2nd Night fell on the city of Metamore, and with the darkness came a return to consciousness. Sanja was confused and frightened. She did not know where she was, exactly, but she knew that she did not belong there. She remembered the moment of her death, the cold, the darkness the floating sensation as her soul broke free of her body. She remembered her terror, knowing that she would die nameless and forgotten in this distant land, so far from the graves of her ancestors. There would be no death offerings for her, no one to call the spirits to shepherd her to the house of rest. She would be cursed to wander the forest of the lost forever. Except that hadn't happened, exactly. Wherever she was now, it was no forest. But it was surely no house of rest, either. Instead of an endless wood full of hungry ghosts, she awoke each night in a darkened house. Whose house it was, she did not know, but from the design of the place and the books on the shelves, she thought it must be in the Empire. Some part of her vaguely felt she knew the place— that it was meaningful somehow, but she could not remember why. Sanja would have gone exploring, but she could not travel far. The house seemed to hold her like a prisoner, 
Though she could pass through interior walls with ease, the outer walls were as solid to her as steel. Night after night she paced the narrow halls and cluttered rooms, looking for a way out, looking for someone who might help her. Sometimes she peered out the windows at the street beyond, but though she called to passers-by in every language she knew, none of them ever heard her. I will go mad here, she thought, as spectral tears ran freely down her cheeks. Unseen, unheard, untouched. If this is eternity, it is better never to have been at all. With that terrible thought, she sank to her knees, covered her head with her hands, and screamed. She did not know how long she knelt there, wailing and sobbing. Time did not seem to run in quite the same way as it once had. A few minutes or a lifetime later, though, she felt a gentle hand upon her shoulder. There, there, a woman's voice said. Sanja thought the words were an imperial common, but she understood them as clearly as her own tongue. They were the first words anyone had spoken to her since her death. Sanja looked up in wonder. There was a woman standing beside her, a Kitchlander, barely more than a girl, with a pale, heart-shaped face and straight, shoulder-length brown hair streaked with gold. Her whole body glowed faintly in the dark of the house. She looked down at Sanja with tenderness in her eyes. Hey there, the woman said. I'm Abby. What's your name? It was a simple, ordinary thing to say, but in her present extraordinary circumstances, it brought fresh tears to Sanja's eyes. Just to be seen, to be acknowledged, felt like a miracle. I am Sanja, Sanja said at last. Uh, are you a guardian spirit? Abby smiled again, and this time the expression was touched with irony. Not exactly, but I do help spirits find their way home. I've been looking for you for a while now. I'd like to get you out of here. Home. The word filled Sanja with sudden hope. I would like that, she said. No sooner were the words out, though, than she realized her problem. Hope fell once more. But I do not know the way. Even if I could leave this place, the spirits are not here to guide me to the house of rest. There is no one here to pray for me, no one to honor my name and call the spirits to my side. If I set out without their help, I will be lost. Abby nodded seriously. We had a feeling you would say that. But stop and listen a second. What do you hear? Sanja frowned. There was something there, a faint music, coming to her as if across a great distance. A moment later, she identified it as the sound of a clay flute. The song was not one she knew, but something about it reminded her of home. She felt a gentle tugging in her chest, as if the song were leading her somewhere. I... I don't understand, Sanja said, as fear crept into her voice once more. What is this? What am I feeling? Abby held out her hand, palm upward. Come with me and see. Sanja hesitated, but only for a moment. 
She did not know this pale-skinned woman, but surely any place she might lead her was better than this. She took Abby's hand. Instantly the sound of the music grew stronger, as if it were traveling through Abby herself. The tug on Sanja's heart grew stronger, too, and now she perceived the direction it was leading her. The sensation was strange, as if she had lived her entire life moving only forward and back, and she had only just discovered the ability to step sideways. She and Abby moved in this new direction together. There was some resistance, like passing through a thin sheet of gelatin or a wall of spiderwebs and then new light and color flooded her senses. Sanja blinked and looked around. They were still in the house, but the lights were turned on, and three people sat on the floor of the living room in a loose circle. A small fire burned in a bronze brazier between them, heavy with the smell of incense. Two of the people were Kitchlanders, a man and a woman, both with pale skin and blonde brown hair. The man held a religious medallion of some kind in his hands, a tree with a twin cross superimposed on it. The woman held the clay flute, which she had abruptly stopped playing as Sanja and Abby stepped into view. Yashua, the man whispered. The third person was a Hanese woman, perhaps a few years older than Sanja. She wore the white funeral robe that was customary in several Eastern cultures, and she had her straight black hair pulled back in a traditional bun. She knelt with a death scroll partly unrolled before her, and Sanja could see that she had already completed the first two lines of the prayer. She stared slack-jawed at Sanja and Abby, the calligraphy brush still gripped tightly in her trembling hand. Sanja noticed one other person in the room as well a young woman, asleep on the couch at the far end of the room. With a start, Sanja realized that it was Abby. The ghostly Abby turned to smile at her staring companions. Everyone, this is Sanja. Sanja, this is Lisa, Pamela, and Michael. She indicated each of them in turn. Michael's eyes darted back and forth between Sanja and Abby. Is she... Is she really here? he asked. I mean, is this really her spirit? Abby looked at Sanja, the compassion evident in her eyes. It's her. She just got a little stuck. She'd like to go home. Sanja nodded emphatically. Yes, ma'am. Please. The Hanese woman, Lisa, finally seemed to recover her composure. She cleared her throat. <clears throat> I, um, wasn't sure if we'd be able to find out your name, so... She gestured down at the scroll. I asked my ancestors to help you find your way. I hope that's all right. Sanja was momentarily speechless. What Lisa had done, in essence, was to ask her own ancestors to embrace Sanja as one of their own. Such a thing was not unheard of. It might be done for a friend with no living relatives, or an adopted child. In making the request, though, Lisa was committing herself to an ongoing obligation, to make prayers and offerings on Sanja's behalf, to pass on Sanja's memory to her own children and grandchildren. It was an intimate gift, 
and Sanja had never heard of anyone doing it for a stranger. Why? she asked, her eyes on Lisa, her voice thick with tears. Why carry this burden for me? I am no one to you. Lisa's lips turned briefly up in a bittersweet smile. But you're not. I mean, look, here you are, talking to me. Her eyes glistened, and she looked away, blinking hard. Besides, I owe you this. Trust me. And nobody deserves to be lost. Deeply moved, Sanja knelt beside Lisa and touched the hand that was holding her brush. The woman's body did not feel like flesh the way Abby's had, but it was warm and sparkled with unseen energy. Lisa's whole body shivered, but she did not pull away. Sanja found that, by concentrating hard, she could move that hand, and the pen with it. Here, she said gently, I will show you how to write my name and the names of my ancestors. Lisa, eyes wide, let out a shaky breath and nodded. Okay. Slowly, carefully, Sanja moved Lisa's hand, dipping the brush in the inkwell and touching it to the page. Hanese was a common trade language in her part of the world, and she could read it well enough to see where the name of the adopted person was supposed to go. With small, deliberate motions, she formed the characters for her name, and then the names of her father and his father. Lastly, she wrote their clan name, a beautiful and elaborate compound character that she had practiced countless times since she was a child. She let go of Lisa's hand, which fell trembling into her lap. Sanja pointed at each name in turn and taught Lisa their pronunciations, until the Hanese woman could repeat them flawlessly. I'll remember, Lisa promised. Her voice was rough with emotion, and tears ran freely down her cheeks. I'll burn the offerings for you every year. I'll teach my children to pray for your spirit. You won't be forgotten. I swear it. And with the promise made, Sanja felt a knot of tension release inside her. Above the brazier, a circle of light opened near the ceiling. To Sanja's ghostly body, it felt like the light of the sun. As she stared up at it in wonder, she thought she could hear the sound of waves rolling in on a distant shore. She caught the scent of the sea air, and a wind that came from nowhere caressed her skin and gently tossed her hair. She felt that tug on her heart again, stronger now. If she let it, it would draw her upwards, through the circle, to whatever waited on the other side. Abby stepped up beside her and took her hand, smiling encouragingly. The realms beyond are waiting for you, she said. Overcome with a tangle of emotions, Sanja turned and hugged the other woman tightly. Abby returned the embrace with equal strength, and Sanja felt the wetness of Abby's tears against her cheek. Thank you, Sanja whispered. Then she turned to the others, who were staring awestruck at the portal overhead. Thank you all. A thousand blessings on you. Then she spread out her arms and floated upward into the circle of light.
The portal disappeared with a flash. Michael rubbed at his eyes, trying to clear the spots from his vision. When he could see again, the ghostly form of Abby Preston was gone as well. He looked over to the couch and saw the telepath sitting up, rubbing absently at her neck. Holy shit, Pamela said, though she spoke in a hushed, almost reverential tone. When they said you were a ghost hunter, Abby, I never dreamed it was anything like that. Each time is different, Abby said, matching her tone. Every ghost has their own ideas of what will help them to get home. Michael looked over at Lisa. The medical examiner was staring down at the death scroll and her own hands, as if trying to figure out whether all this had actually happened or not. But the characters the ghost had written through Lisa were still there, sharp and black against the white rice paper of the scroll. Is it all real? Michael asked Abby. The Forest of the Lost? The House of Rest? Will Lisa's ancestors really help her find the afterlife? Abby shrugged. I don't know. I can't see into the realms beyond. I'm pretty sure that if you go there, you don't come back. She gestured down at the yew-tree crucifix in Michael's hands. Not normally, anyway. But Sanja believed in it, so that's what she needed to find her way. Lisa pressed her palms together under her chin and whispered one final prayer, then put the lid on the brazier to cover it. She took out a bag of fine white sand and scattered it over the scroll to help the ink dry. Michael moved over to help her as she got to her feet. Her legs were a little unsteady. Thanks, she said. Her voice was still rough, and she didn't look up at the rest of them, her eyes staying fixed on the scroll. We should let that sit for a while to make sure it's dry. Pamela smiled at her encouragingly. I don't think we need to be in any hurry to clear out of here. Dr. Drowling said we could stay here until morning. It's not as if anyone is waiting to use it, Michael agreed. The house's owner, Nevenard Lido, was being held without bail as he awaited trial, and no one else in his family had stepped forward to take charge of the place in his absence. That was hardly surprising, given that at least seven people had died here in just the last few weeks. Abby rose and joined them in the circle. Her serious brown eyes scanned the room intently, but if she saw any other ghosts or apparitions here, she didn't mention it. You said there are more of these lost spirits? she asked. We think so, Pamela said. These psychos killed a lot of people. If they did to the others anything like what they did to Sanja, then yeah, probably there's going to be ghosts. Abby gave one slow, serene nod. I'll be happy to help you find them. She hesitated, then asked, Is the department funding this project? Michael shook his head. Just the three of us for now. There might be a few others I can ask later. But this mission has cost them enough already. Abby smiled apologetically. Well, I can give you the friends and family discount anyway. She gestured to Pamela, who looked simultaneously relieved and uncomfortable. From what Michael had gathered, Pamela and the Psy Collective were not on the best of terms. Lisa picked up the brazier and regarded it thoughtfully. You know, it's funny. 
I was raised with all of this. I did it because it was expected. I learned all the rituals, all the prayers, all the stories. But I don't know if I ever believed in it. Michael glanced up at the ceiling. There was no sign that there had ever been a portal there, a door to another world. But you believe it now? Lisa did not answer at first. She seemed to have trouble forming words. She walked over to the kitchen counter and set down the brazier, then just looked at it, her back turned to the rest of them. She pressed her palms to her face and wiped slowly over her eyes and cheeks, as if she could scrape away her own conflicted feelings. I don't know, she said at last. I mean, we were all there. We saw it. Ghosts are real. Souls are real. She made a frustrated sound. Does that mean it's all real? That there's a house of rest out there where I'll see my grandparents again? She turned her empty hands outward, palms up. It would be nice to think so, but I just don't know. They all chewed on that in silence for a minute. Michael looked down at his crucifix, rubbed his thumb absently over the branches of the yew tree. I do know this, Lisa said at last. She turned around to face the rest of them, and Michael thought she stood a bit taller. It matters that people are remembered. All of this, she indicated the brazier, the scroll, the brush, and its inkwell. Maybe it doesn't help our souls get to heaven. Maybe it only mattered for Sanja because she believed in it. But it matters for us. She looked around at each of them in turn, her expression bleak. I fucked up on these murders. I missed clues I shouldn't have. Because I didn't care. Because I didn't know who these people were. She looked down at the floor. Because they weren't people to me. Not really. They were just... Just the next job. Michael stole a glance at the others. Pamela was wincing in apparent sympathy, or maybe just at the brutal honesty in Lisa's words. Abby still seemed distant, her attention divided between here and an elsewhere that only she could see. She lives with spirits every day, Michael thought. Maybe we're the ones who don't seem real to her. Lisa put her hand on top of the brazier without looking at it. I understand this stuff now. It grounds you. It reminds you that this... This piece of dead meat in front of you is a person, with a name and a family, and hopes and dreams and... She broke off as more tears spilled down her cheeks. She wiped them away, almost angrily. And they mattered, she whispered. They all mattered. Pamela came up to her now, put a comforting arm around her. Lisa leaned into the touch, letting her head rest against the other woman's. With her other hand, Pamela reached around and gripped one of Lisa's. We'll find them, Pamela assured her. We'll help them get home. They aren't going to stay lost forever. Lisa just nodded, accepting the words of encouragement for what they were. It's not enough, Michael thought, looking down again at the crucifix and the death scroll beyond it.
and Sanja won't be the last. The Brotherhood might be on the run for now, but they weren't the only ones in this city who treated the poor like disposable people. For Eli's sake, the locals even called them street rats, as if they were vermin, not human at all. The words of Yahshua came back to him, dredged up from a lifetime of sermons and Sunday school lessons. Whatever you did to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. If the words of the canticle were true, if Yahshua was coming back some day to judge the world and everyone in it, then the people of Metamor would have a lot to answer for. But Michael couldn't fix that. Not alone, and not today. For now, just like Lisa and Pamela and Abby, he would do what he could, where he could, to try to make this place a little kinder, a little warmer, and a little wiser. It's not enough, he thought. But we have to start somewhere. And that's the end of Chapter 65. Come back next time, when Kate is reunited with her old partner, and the MCPD leadership makes some important staffing changes. Now it's time to check in on my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 2,577 words this week, over the course of four hours, for an average writing speed of 644 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone nine days without breaking my chain. This week I continued working on None Shall Dwell Within. The beginning of a new Metamore City novel is always an interesting balancing act for me. I can't take it for granted that the reader has read every book that came before this in the series. That's especially true for this one, since Homecoming is an erotic fantasy, and that might not be to the taste of everyone who reads my other books. So I have a bunch of decisions to make in these early chapters. How much do I remind readers about the rules of the setting? How much do I explain the curse? How much do I recap about the plot points of earlier books, or the backstories of the characters? And how do I integrate this sort of exposition seamlessly into the story, so it doesn't feel like an info dump? It's a balancing act, and I'm being reminded that writing beginnings is a very different skill from writing middles and endings. The book is now in Chapter 3, and the manuscript is over 7,000 words and counting. Over on the Patreon feed, we have two new patrons this month. Say hello to Aaron and Andy. This week I shared a new preview image from Carol Foote's next piece of bonus art. This is the third illustration for A Wizard Family Solstice, and it shows the moment when Artax confronts Esme, after John inadvertently snuck her past the shop's wards. This sneak peek is visible to all patrons at the $3 a month level and higher. If you like what I'm doing with this show and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the single best way to support me. You get access to exclusive content you can't get anywhere else, like the the behind-the-episode author commentaries on each podcast. If you donate at the $3 level or higher, you'll get art previews, cover reveals, character bios, and other cool stuff. To get started, go to patreon.com slash author chris lester. 
take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's right for you. 91% of whatever you pledge goes directly to me, so it's a win-win for everybody. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. I couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.